Hey, good morning, church. Preacher Steve coming to you today from inside a prison cell somewhere here in Florida. We got permission to record at this location. And you say, Steve, why would you be preaching from inside of a jail cell? I'm glad you asked. It's a good question. The reason that we're here today is because in our sermon series, Obey Everything, today we're going to be dealing with the commandment prohibiting murder. Thou shalt not murder. Now, I know that's an Old Testament commandment, and this is a series about obeying the commands of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, but Jesus repeats that command in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Were you to commit murder, or if I were to commit murder and get caught, and you will be caught, we would undoubtedly wind up in a location just like this. Maybe not this prison, but in a prison cell. Now, I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. You're thinking, Steve, I can probably take a pass on the sermon this Sunday because I'll tell you right now, I'm never going to commit murder and I'm never going to wind up in a prison. I get it. And that's probably true for most of us, statistically speaking, most people never commit a murder. So on a surface level, that's true. However, doesn't Jesus have a way of getting beneath the surface of an issue and getting right down to the heart level? Sure he does. And that's what he does with this commandment prohibiting murder in the Sermon on the Mount. There's more than one kind of a prison cell. There are prisons that are made of brick and mortar and iron bars. But there are all the kinds of prisons of the heart. And we may be in one of those prisons. And if we are today, not to fear. Jesus has the key, and he's going to exercise it for us. Now let's get those verses before us in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, you see what Jesus is doing here? He's taking us through progressive stages, or we might say digressive stages, into the darkness of the human heart that leads to murder. Now, let's break this down and, and look at these stages today. First of all, stage one is anger. Anger. Anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, did you notice the punishment there? The wording that Jesus uses for anger is exactly the same as was used for murder. He said, you have heard that it was said, don't commit murder or you shall be subject to judgment. He says the same thing about anger. You shall be subject to judgment. Now, what is anger? Anger is a response. It's an emotion that comes spontaneously, typically when someone interferes with our will, what we want to do. It's kind of natural, part of our natural defense mechanism. If it just flares and then we let it go, really no problem with that. No sin in that. 
The sin happens when we decide to indulge our anger, to embrace our anger. We will to be angry. And when that happens, we can actually become sort of an angry person, just an angry person, where the anger is constantly bubbling just below the surface, ready to erupt like a volcano at the slightest provocation. You see this in road rage incidents all the time, and people react way out of proportion to whatever happened. You say, where did that come from? Well, they're indulging their anger. You know, Zig Ziglar was pretty well known for a story about a man who was the CEO of his company, Mr. B. Mr. B every morning would meet with some of his cronies for breakfast before going into work, and one day he lingered a little too long, so he was late going to work, and he runs out to the parking lot, jumps in his car, burns rubber, hauling down the highway, looks in the rearview mirror, sure enough, sees the blue lights flashing. Oh no, he gets a ticket for speeding. And the longer he waits for the officer to write that ticket, the more angry he becomes. And he snatches the ticket out of the policeman's hands, heads on down the road, gets to work. The first person he sees is his sales manager. And the sales manager says, good morning, Mr. B. And Mr. B says, what's good about it? You, I want to see you in my office. So the sales manager goes into the office and Mr. B says, you are behind on your quota, which is due in two weeks, and I want to know what you're going to do about it. <laughs> and the sales manager says, Mr. B, we talked about this just a couple of days ago. I have four pending sales. If any of them close, it'll put us ahead of our projections, and I'm sure at least one of them is going to close. Mr. B says, I'll believe it when I see it. Now get out there and sell something. So now the sales manager goes out and he's angry and the first person he sees is his assistant and of course he chews out the assistant and then the assistant goes out and chews out the person who's below him on the totem pole and so it goes all day long at the office that day and the last person who gets yelled at is the receptionist and the receptionist drives home and she's in a foul mood and her, she sees her 12 year old son in the house and she yells at him and tells him to go up to his room and on the way up the stairs, his cat runs in front of him, and he kicks the cat. Now, at this point, Zig Ziglar asks a pertinent question. He says, wouldn't it have saved a lot of time and a lot of grief and a lot of drama if Mr. B had just gone over to the receptionist's house himself and kicked that little boy's cat? And then he says... Another even more pertinent question. Whose cat are you kicking? When we indulge and embrace our anger, why do we do that? Why do we hold on to that grudge? When we know it's not good for anybody around us and it's not good for us. Scientific studies show anger is a killer when we hold on to it and embrace it. The reason is because of an element in our character of self-righteousness and vanity. We begin to think about that offense, real or imagined, and we blow it out of proportion. I can't believe he said that to me. I can't believe she treated me like that. I can't believe he did that to my family. 
I can't believe, I don't deserve to be treated that way. And it's all about me, me. And we get bent out of proportion. 25,000 murders a year are committed in the United States. If it weren't for somebody indulging their anger and choosing to be angry, only a fraction of those would ever take place. Don't you agree? We must release that anger. We say, how, do you, how am I supposed to do that? If I can't take it out on someone, I know I shouldn't internalize it. That's right. And this isn't really a message on how to deal with anger. This is just one part of the message. There are many ways, but I'll tell you one important way, and that's to pray. Learn how to pray the lament. Read the Psalms of David in the Old Testament when Saul was treating him unjustly. He laid it all out before God and said, God, you judge between me and Saul. You take care of this. And he left his anger at the throne of God. And so he never took action against Saul himself. One way is simply to unburden our anger to God in prayer. Okay, this is stage one, is anger. Now let's go to stage two. Okay, church, uh, this is my bunk, by the way. It's kind of hard, i got to tell you, but let's go to stage two in this digression into the darkness of the human heart. We started with anger. Then Jesus moves to contempt. Contempt. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. Now, we don't use this word raka anymore. It's an Aramaic word. Scholars believe it could be an onomatopoeia word, and that's the word where the, the sound suggests its meaning. When you say raka, now say that now, say that to uh, the person who's sitting with you and you're living, raka. It almost sounds like you're conjuring up some spittle in the back of your throat so that you can spit. Raka, spit. I don't have anywhere to spit in here. But if that's the case, then the, the etymology and the origin of that word is, is very appropriate because to spit on someone communicates not only anger but contempt. You can be angry with someone without holding them in contempt. But to have contempt for someone is to see them as the other, sometimes as less than and shameful and to communicate that with, to them. And spit in the Bible is almost always, with very few exceptions, combined with mockery and contempt. Jesus was spat upon, wasn't he, during his trial and crucifixion, many times, as a matter of fact. The prophet Isaiah looked forward to the thoughts of the Messiah when he wrote Isaiah 56, I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. I can tell you from personal experience that it's very demeaning to be spat upon because I have been spat upon. I mean, I haven't told a lot of people about this, but just a few because it's kind of humiliating. But yeah, I was spat upon one time and actually it was by a female. It wasn't even by a man, which made it worse in a way. And I didn't deserve it. I feel like I didn't deserve it. But she looked me right in the eye and I could see the contempt. And she just went, tooey. And, and spit on me. And I might have retaliated. I know you're never supposed to retaliate or, or hit a female. I might have retaliated, except that she was pretty big. She actually outweighed me by 100 or 150 pounds. And not only that, 
she was a llama. Uh, it's was her name's Fancy over at Laporte Farm, and I'd been feeding her carrots, and I stopped, and she just spit on me. Now, some of you are saying, Steve, come on, you had me going there. That doesn't really count. Maybe it doesn't, but I can tell you it still felt bad, and I thought I saw contempt in her eye. But how much worse, of course, would it be if a person spit on another person, or if you would, were spat upon? Just demeaning, dehumanizing contempt. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote an article about the inner ring and how we all want to be included on the inside and how we're terrified of being excluded. He writes, in every person's lives at certain periods and in many people's lives at all periods, between infancy and old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. You know, we see this happen on playgrounds, in schoolyards, in classrooms, picking up ball teams, sometimes in work environments, and in neighborhoods or at parties, or heaven forbid, sometimes even in churches, where there's us and we're all in, but you are out. You are the other, and you are oh so precisely excluded from the inner group holding people in contempt. Sometimes this happens when nation goes to war against nation and the government will issue propaganda so that the enemy can be positioned as something less than human and can be held in contempt because that makes it that much easier to visit violence upon another person. We're to hold no one in contempt. We are not to hold anger in our hearts because this takes us down the, the, the dangerous digression of the darkness of the human heart. Now that's stage one and stage two. Now let's talk about stage three. Okay, church, now stage three that Jesus takes us to is what I would call loathing. Hatred and loathing. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, this word fool does not carry the same stigma today that it did in Jesus' day. The biblical idea of a fool was someone who was perverse in their nature and in full rebellion against God. Uh, the Proverbs do a good job of sketching the character of the fool. Just let me give you two or three examples. Proverbs 14, 16, a fool is arrogant and careless. 18, 2, a fool doesn't care about understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. It's an idea that combines all of the sinfulness of anger and contempt and takes it to this next level, loathing and hatred. I mean, we don't really have a word uh, that conveys that, like fool or raka. We might call someone a jerk. We might call them a jackass. When, when contempt and loathing really get going, you get into obscenity, which, of course, I'm not going to use, but you've heard those words, and we, we may have even used those words before. Loathing. In the Broadway musical Wicked, there are, are two 
girls who go to college and they're put together in a dormitory room and they could not be more opposite. They have an instant dislike for each other. And in the musical, they sing a duet about loathing and how much they loathe each other. And the lyrics include this. Let's just say, I loathe it all. Every little trait, however small, makes my very flesh begin to crawl with simple, utter loathing. There's a strange exhilaration in touch, such total detestation. It's so pure and strong. And though I do admit it came on fast, still I do believe that it can last, and I will be loathing you my whole life long. Are there some people we love to hate? We watch a movie or read a book, there's a villain that we love to hate and loathe. Well, we can't do that in real life. It's a violation of what Jesus wants for us. Randy Alcorn writes about Wesley Dodd. Wesley Dodd was a man who had been sentenced to death for kidnapping and killing three boys. And on the night of his execution in 1991, of course it was a media event, the newscasters all descend on a prison when that happens like a flock of vultures. So it was all over the news. And that night at dinner, he said, when the family bowed their head to pray, his two daughters, 11 and 13, prayed that Wesley Dodd would somehow find salvation in Jesus, either that he had or he would before he was executed. And Alcorn says he agreed with that prayer, but only because he knew he should. He didn't really feel it. After the execution, the 12 members of the gallery who had witnessed it came out and said that Dodd had made a statement before his execution. And he said, I thought that there was no hope or peace for me. But I'm so happy that I have found hope and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Alcorn said there was a groan, an audible groan that had gone through the gallery when he made that statement. How dare he presume upon the grace of God? The sentiment was, shut up and die, you child killer, and go to hell. Don't think you're going to get off that easy. Randy Alcorn said that's when it hit him like a ton of bricks. He had thought that he was so different from Wesley Allen Dodd, holding in, in, in contempt and loathing and hatred. But he realized the distance between him and Dodd was not the distance from the North Pole to the South Pole. In the eyes of God, it was negligible. He was of the same stock, the same fallen human race of Adam as Wesley Allen Dodd. He had no more right to stand before God than did Wesley. Only on the basis of the death and the blood and the righteousness of Christ and his forgiveness. And Randy Alcorn said, when we think, looking at the evil, wicked deeds of other people, that I could never do that. I would never do that. He said, we're fooling ourselves. Given the same background, circumstances, and opportunity, we could and we would.
We are Dodd. We are Hitler. We are Osama bin Laden. We are Mao. We are Joseph Stalin. We have the same sinful nature in us. So it is totally hypocritical for us to stand in judgment, anger, contempt, loathing, and hatred of any other person. So these are the three stages that Jesus has us step up to the abyss, look into the darkness, and tell the truth. No anger, no contempt, no loathing. One more point to make. All right, let's wrap this up. For my final point, I want to use the word red rum. Red rum. Red rum. You know what red rum is? If you know, put it in the comments or, or turn to the person you're watching with right now and tell them. Red rum, of course, is murder spelled backwards. Now let's reverse this whole process, this digression that Jesus has taken us through so that we can get to the heart of the matter. Is, it, is, the, is the idea here that we just have three more things we can't do, three more laws, and now we have a word that we can't use when we want to call somebody a name, we can't say fool or raka? That's not the point, is it? The point is the preciousness of people in the eyes of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What are those two commandments? You know what they are. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we love people and God, we won't hold them in contempt. We won't indulge our anger. We won't loathe and hate them. So the point is love. Isn't that what Paul wrote in Romans 13? If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. In May 1984, Billy Lee Moore was scheduled to be executed for a murder that he had committed. Years before, as a young man uh, from a, a poor background, joined the army, became an alcoholic, and he'd been drinking one night, and he broke into the home of a neighbor who was known to keep large amounts of money in his apartment. And during the commission of that robbery, he killed that neighbor and escaped with $54,000. He was later apprehended, convicted, and rightfully sent to prison and death row. That takes many years before a person is executed on death row. And two men, two Christians, went to visit Billy Moore in prison at the behest of his mother and shared the gospel of Jesus with him. He'd never heard of Jesus. He'd never heard of the love of God. And he embraced the gospel. He accepted Jesus. He was baptized into Christ in a tub in that prison for just that purpose. And then over the ensuing years, his life began to change. And he read the Bible and took Bible correspondence courses. And he began to counsel other prisoners in his cell block. His cell block was the most peaceful in the whole prison because of his influence. Three days before he was due to be executed, the Georgia Board of Parole and Pardons stayed the execution. Then they commuted his sentence from death to life. And in 1991, a few years later, they let him go. First time in the history of that board because of the change in his life. He became a minister, married as a doting father, and he serves and ministers between two housing projects to people that the world has largely forgotten. Asked what made the difference in his life, he said it was the gospel of God's love. Don't loathe love. As Paul wrote, Paul, who knew something about 
participating in the death of innocent people. Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. God bless you, church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not dealt with us in justice, but in grace and love and mercy. We are no better than anyone else. And right here, right now, we release all anger, contempt, loathing, and hatred into your hands. We will walk this earth as a representative of Jesus, loving all with whom we come in contact. In Jesus' name, amen.